This podcast was recorded before a live telephone audience. This is Open Line with Michelle Naranjo, Chelsea Sexton, and Aaron Bragman. Episode 7 for December 2011, Lulls with Lutz. You can watch and participate live on the first Tuesday of every month at autoline.tv. Open Line starts at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific. Join in on the call anytime by dialing 1712-432-0900 and enter PIN 911-633. I'm Michelle Naranjo from autobytel.com. I'm joined by Chelsea Sexton from chelseasexton.com, Aaron Bragman, analyst extraordinaire from IHS, and Mr. Bob Lutz, who is, I don't think that needs any explanation. We are thanking our streaming partners tonight, GM Inside News, GM Authority, RumbleStrip.net, and DC Auto Geek. If you want to join in the call, go to bit.ly forward slash open line. Look for the call instructions there. Um, while we're on the interview with Mr. Lutz, you can just dial star six and we'll put you in a queue to ask your question directly to him. So thank you, Bob, for joining us. Yes, thank you. Well, nice to be here. We appreciate you coming on, and uh, it was also good of you to stop by first Saturday on uh, Saturday locally here in Ypsilanti to uh, sign some books. I actually got a book signed on Saturday oh, by, by Bob. Yeah, glad yeah. you did. Glad you did. Well, that, uh, actually, uh, the number of books was insufficient for all the people who wanted it. Oh, really? But, which was a good sign. It was a considerable line. There were there was actually quite a number of people there. It was uh, it was a good time. So are you are you enjoying are you enjoying your latest retirement? <laughs> well, it's one of these where I ask myself how I ever had time to work full time because between the lecture circuit, book tour, consulting, board memberships, and so forth and so on, uh, I'm really 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 busy. <laughs> you keep the helicopter humming uh, back and forth, huh? Well. That actually doesn't get used too much anymore because uh, when I when I worked uh, at GM at the Warren Tech Center or downtown, I mean it was a reliable route and it was a it was a routine and it, it often uh, favored the helicopter. But now I have sort of these random assignments and a, a lot of them involve airline travel to somewhere else. So the uh, helicopter, unfortunately, is often not an option. It's become sort of a pleasure instrument. We're actually getting a, a couple of people in the chat room who are saying that they're having a hard time hearing you. If you, it's possible to speak up just a little bit, that would be really helpful. Sure. Uh, is this better? That is better, yeah. Thank you. Okay. Well, it's a shame that it's not going to use us as much as it, it once was. We were always, uh, I was always hoping to actually commute someday in, in, that, in that same fashion. <laughs> But uh, you're actually serving on uh, a couple of other boards as well. I know you joined recently Via Motors. Yes, I did, yeah. Uh, why Via? Is it the connection with GM's truck program? Well, um, initially not, no. It was um, an independent initiative that was born out of the fact that uh, Craig Higginson, who is the founder and the power behind Via, uh, was originally in negotiation with GM for the purchase of the Hummer brand. And uh, that ah. kind of fell apart at the last minute. And uh, he was, need needless to say, disappointed because he'd spent quite a bit of money on it. And then mm. 
uh, GM said, well, would you like to convert uh, some full-size GM pickups to extended-range electric vehicles? And he said, well, there might well be some interest there. So that's how that started. So it's uh, the, the program basically now is <clears throat> converting full-size GM pickups into vehicles that have the same properties as the Chevrolet Volt, namely sort of 40 miles, purely electric, and then a small gasoline engine serving as a generator to keep the battery the battery powered up. But the reason this is even more attractive in the pickup world than in passenger cars is that so many utility companies and trade people uh, like the fact that when you drive the truck to the job site, and when you're on the job site, you've got 30 kilowatts of electrical power that can come out of outlets on the truck. Uh, 220, 110, uh, 24 volts, 16, uh, 12 volt, whatever you want, comes right out of the truck for as, as long as you've got battery and gasoline in the tank. You have a mobile power source wherever you go. Hmm. But didn't GM do something like that similar with a hybrid pickup before? Well, we had a hybrid pickup with a with I guess a one fifteen out. Ah, okay, right, right, but right. But there there was no sort of reserve capacity. You know, you had to keep the engine going. I gotcha. Yeah, there was the thing with the Hummer. I remember. Um, at the end of the days, because I used to work with Rod Hall on, on the Hummer racing program, um, that they were talking about these Hummers that would actually be able to go into a disaster situation and power entire hospitals. Yeah, that, and that was, that was Craig Higginson's vision when he founded Via Motors. He really wanted to um, basically electrify the whole, if he, as he was buying the brand, his vision was to electrify the every Hummer vehicle from the H2 down to the future H4 and H5 and basically convert Hummer from the environmental antichrist into a model of environmental efficiency. Hmm. As it happened, uh, for a variety of reasons, General Motors decided not to sell the brand and to wind it down. Um, But the idea lives on in uh, the Via pickups, which then the VIA program, of course, can easily be extended into the full-size vans, which then, if you imagine catering weddings, uh, the vans that bring the stuff, you know, the tables and chairs and everything, uh, can then power the whole outdoor wedding. I mean, the tent, the heat lamps, the band. (laughs) So it it, it really is, uh, and I think for construction workers or carpenters, plumbers, um, anybody who has to do anything outdoors with a pickup truck, there's no longer any need to drag along one of those uh, generators on a trailer or have a huge, huge generator in the pickup truck bed. Now the pickup truck itself is that generator. That's both a, that's both a, maybe not a cost savings, but it's a security issue too because those generators are so very easily stolen off of job sites. Not only that, it is a cost saving because for the public utilities who buy these things, the combination of monthly depreciation on the truck or monthly payment on the truck plus fuel cost is lower for the via truck than for a conventional gasoline truck. So it, it for the uh, 
for utility fleets around the country, it makes sense from day one. And then think of military applications. If you have a military base, either a fixed base in the United States or a forward base in a combat zone, uh, a vulnerable portion of the base is obviously your power generation, whether that's a conventional power plant or a bunch of diesel generators. Mm -hmm. uh, if you have 50 or 100 of these pickup trucks deployed around the base, the elimination of the power station is not a problem as long as there's some gasoline in each one of those pickup trucks. We have a question from the chat room. Um, is the military interested in the application for defense for on the EV? Well, I think electric vehicles or vehicles that can operate electrically are, um, attract a great deal of interest from the military because the military a lot of times has to conduct stealth operations. And an electric vehicle is both silent, and you could argue, well, you could probably work on a conventional vehicle enough to make it silent, too. But the problem is a conventional vehicle always has a heat source called the engine and the glowing manifolds and everything, and that can be picked up by any sort of infrared detection device. So uh, conventional vehicles are always going to be visible, uh, whereas electric vehicles run cool enough. I mean, there's a little bit of heat generated in the batteries, but not enough to show up. So an electric vehicle is both silent and creates no heat signature. So for stealthy nighttime military operations, they are without equal. We've had another question from the chat room, and uh, I'm sure you probably get this question a number of times, actually. Uh, can you please ask Bob Letts if he thinks there's any chance that GM will bring back the Pontiac brand? <laughs> Well, I'd like to see it, and of course I'm no longer in charge of that, but yeah. I, I really don't think so. I think the, and, and Pontiac was the one brand that I hated the most to see depart, um, Saab going, I could live with that, that was a, it's an interesting brand, but it was a perennial source of losses. Um, Hummer, as we said, had become uh, a liability from a, from a corporate image standpoint, and uh, Saturn was a perennial money loser, and also, unfortunately, in terms of appeal to the public, largely overlapped with Chevrolet. And that's one of the reasons why mm. Chevrolet is doing so much better now, mm. is that it no longer has to compete for the same customers with Saturn. So all have of they, these were fine. Have they seen a number of the, of the Saturn buyers transfer over to Chevrolet? Um, I, I'm not... You know, mm. I'm not privy to the statistics material <laughs> anymore, but I would say judgmentally, you know, it's mm. happening. It's one of the fears I know that of canceling Saturn brand was was losing what they call the orphan customers and uh, going to other brands after they'd uh, lost their their preferred brand from General Motors. Yeah, I, I know that Pontiac, uh, the picking up Pontiac customers by Buick and Chevrolet has been very successful so far. Mm. Uh, but Pontiac, I think, was in the process of being rehabilitated and being returned to its roots with the G8, and um, and that it was going to be followed by a smaller, lighter rear-wheel drive sedan, sort of mm. more along the size of a BMW 3 Series. And, of course, you had the Solstice and the Solstice GXP. So we were in the process of really making Pontiac a different brand, moving away from front-wheel drive, and going to rear-wheel drive sporty cars across the board, which I think would have been a nice complement to the 
to the GM portfolio in Pontiac instead of basically offering the same technology as Chevrolet Buick uh, was now going to be was now going to stand apart. Unfortunately, Chapter 11 intervened, and the federal government is one of the conditions for uh, bailing out the company. Uh, sadly insisted that Pontiac be one of the brands to be eliminated. So it's gone. I regret it. I yeah. think it was a pity to see it go. Especially hearing now what you're talking about, some of the future product that, that we might have seen from, from Pontiac. Uh, you see a small rear drive 3 Series, kind of yeah. like Cadillac ATS-style stuff? It would have been off the same architecture as oh. Cadillac ATS, but sort of depremiumized to make it more affordable. Oh, that makes me sick to hear. <laughs> Yeah, it would have been unique in the U.S. Country. I mean, not yeah. nobody offers a car like that. No, no, indeed not. I mean, you'd have to go to Europe for that kind of thing. I mean, that's yeah. that's yeah. Oh, I think uh, we're going to go to the actual queue of uh, of questions that we have now as well, Michelle. Yeah, we seem to have a lot of people. Um, I, I think don't doubt it. <laughs> queuing up to ask questions. Ben, can you make the first question asker come live, please? Hello, it's Jim Campbell calling from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Uh, I actually had the, the distinct uh, honor to meet Jim Campbell from uh, VP of Chevrolet Motorsports the other day at SEMA, so I've kind of made my my uh, my dream come true, being able to, to ask the, the great Bob Lutz a, a couple of quick questions, if I don't mind. Mm-hmm, sure. Uh, Bob, I, I guess I've been I've been following you and 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 listening to you and and quite a bit on on uh, with regards to actually on online TV. Now. I guess what's happened to cellulose ethanol? You, you were—I was under the impression you kind of were were, were behind a program there, and yeah, it, it seems a, to be kind of gone. GM effort. Yeah, I think uh, the whole ethanol thing has sort of run out of steam, to be honest. And um, I've been gone for a year and a half. I don't know what the reason is, but uh, there was a lot of opposition uh, from the oil companies on putting on putting in E85 pumps. Mm because um, uh, pumps are very precious real estate at every gas station. And the oil companies quite naturally want to see maximum productivity come out of those pumps. So each pump is kind of judged on how many gallons does it pump per day. Uh, The E85 pumps would have been there, and they probably, at least for the first few years, would not have pumped a lot of fuel. So the oil company said, hey, we can't, we really cannot afford to put in a pump that's not going to pump a lot of gallons. And I, I think really uh, ethanol faced a pretty big hostility from the oil companies as a unique fuel. Now, what the oil companies want to do is to say, we'll take your ethanol and we'll blend it into gasoline generally and we'll go to so-called E20, where all pump fuel will have 20% alcohol. And, of course, there you've got the small engine industry in the United States, the marine industry, and the automotive industry saying, wait, hold the phone. An engine that has not been specifically designed to be ethanol-tolerated is going to be destroyed by E20. Mm. So I don't think that went anywhere either. To to tell you the truth, I I don't have the detail Mm. on what happened or where it is right now, but I... I, at this point, I would say uh, ethanol faces a dim future, whether it's uh, from corn or ethanol or, or um, cellulose. 
one more quick thing, if I could ask you real quick, is um, and, and following you, and of course with the, the your with the concept of the Dodge Viper, and I know you've done work in Corvette and and CTSV and 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 the coupe and all that kind of stuff with with regards to the performance part of the engines for General Motors, and uh, and of course the Viper, and. I guess what it is, there's, there's a lot of hoopla around this this new Ford uh, V6 with the twin turbos, and 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 the fact that General Motors did this in the Buick Grand National back in whatever it was, the early '80s, and and had the the fact that you know forced induction was really the replacement for displacement. Why are we so? Why is General Motors so much on this displacement on demand, which I'm hearing is just nothing but a real nightmare as far as how these engines are working. Well, I think uh, I think displacement on demand is that what you're asking? Yeah, like yeah. why, why aren't we do, working we on it, a smaller engine with with turbocharging yeah, we, and supercharging? We call it we call it active fuel management. But uh, GM is pursuing a lot of different courses. Uh, you've got uh, the active fuel management with cylinder cutoff in the full size pickup trucks and sport utilities. I have a Tahoe with it, and a lot of times I select that display on the instrument panel to see how often I am in four cylinder. And you know you on a flat freeway of uh, at 65 or 70 miles an hour you kick in the cruise control it'll run on four cylinders and uh, will deliver in the high 20s in highway fuel economy sometimes even the low 30s so that works and uh, but at the other end of the spectrum in what Ford calls echo boost which are small engines with turbocharging GM does that too it's the 1.4 liter uh, Chevy cruise that gets uh, 40 miles per gallon plus on the highway. That's a very small engine for a car that size with turbocharging, and it 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 delivers. So the principle, the principle works fine. If you have a, a an engine that's basically too small for the vehicle, and during the times of maximum power or torque demand, you rely on turbocharging and with a turbo, basically tuned for torque rather than for high end horsepower. Uh, you can fool the car into cruising on the highway with the benefit of a very small engine operating at peak efficiency, and in times of added power need, it'll behave like a large engine. So it does work. It works. It works for Ford. It works for GM, and I think it's one of the avenues that's going to be used as we uh, fight for improved fuel economy to make the, the future um, fuel economy mandates. Great. Thank you very much for your question. I think we have a, another Canadian on the line wants to uh, to ask a question, Ben. We have another caller. Must be the same Canadian. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Sorry. Hi, Bob. Well, someone asked an interesting question in the chat room. Um, they want to hear about what vehicles almost came to be, but that you mixed them. Oh, um, well, one of them was a a hopelessly ugly uh, seven-passenger Saturn View. Oh my! Which looked like it looked like one of those uh, early Dodge church vans, you know, that had about three foot of overhang added to the back to make an 18-passenger <laughs> out of it. Oh my and God. this was a Saturn that that just never stopped. Oh. And I said, who, is, who on earth would want to do this? <laughs> and uh, it was, well, you know, um, management was very upset when Dodge 
did the Durango because the Durango had three rows of seats. So management, the, the edict came from management that from now on, every sport utility we do has to have a seven-passenger version. Oh, my God. And I said, well, that's ridiculous, and we're definitely not going to do this one because it's completely sales-proof. And um, that one got... <laughs> And then there was, uh, do you remember the original Buick LaCrosse concept car that oh, yeah. was in, it was very beautiful, sleek, low, with a very low belt line and a huge toothy grin. And um, it was decided that that had been a very successful show car, so we will adopt the styling cues and put them on a midsize sedan. Well, obviously it didn't translate because... Ooh. The appeal of the show car was the fact that it was very low slung, very sleek, very low roof height, and by the time you transpose that on a on a normal passenger car architecture, it just looked ridiculous. And there was this <sighs> huge, like chrome watermelon hanging out of the front of the car, and uh, I said, "Good grief, what what is this?" And they said, "Well, you know the." Um, the edict from management is we shouldn't do show cars just for show cars' sake. If we do a show car that's successful, we should try to put it into production. So that didn't work, and I was able to get rid of that one. And then a fairly nice roadster, if you recall, the Buick Bengal, which uh, was a two-passenger mm -hmm. Buick mm -hmm. car. That was beautiful. It was quite nice. I don't think it was brilliant in terms of design innovation but you know it was it was decent so they had wanted to see if they could put that into production and did a lot of studies and it was so much in, and then once again the proportions of the car had to be changed in order to make it realistic for production and uh it was so much money and so little car at the end i said that one doesn't make any sense so, we axed that one, and then of course there's the one that I should have axed and didn't, which was the GMC Envoy XUV, mm. the one that had sort of like a roll top desk on top. And <laughs> um, it, 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 for people who want to transport grandfather clocks standing upright. And very tall plants, yes. Yeah, or yeah, or or large trees. <laughs> Actually, That's what they talked me into. You know, they just buried me in analysis, and uh, and finally I I said, well, okay, you you folks have obviously done your homework here. Uh, in my judgment, it won't sell, but I I have to trust. You know, you can't come into a company and call everybody an idiot and impose your will all the time because you would very quickly shut people down. So. Even in some cases, even though your gut is telling you this isn't going to work, you do have to listen to the people and trust them and show some mm. respect for their intelligence and for their work, which in this particular case I did. And uh, two and a half years and $275 million later, wow. the vehicle came out and oh, uh, instead of selling ninety to to 100000 a year, we sold 13000 in the first year and shut it down. Well, now it's a collector's item, right? Yeah. Well, I would hope. Well, I mean, sometimes, uh, you know, AMC Pacers are collector's items. Exactly. And uh, I, I think one might want to corner the market on Aztecs because they could be hugely valuable someday, too.
they are some of the most polarizing vehicle owners, I should say, Absolutely. I've, I've ever met. The owners love them. They love them. They're fanatical about them. Yeah. We actually have, Mark, are you still on the line here? Uh, yes, I am. You are. Please go ahead and ask your questions, sir. Oh, hi, Bob. Uh, pleasure to talk to you. I've been uh, an admirer of, of you for many years and uh, have a great respect for you. Uh, enjoyed the book. Uh, my only complaint was that it was maybe a little too short. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, you can blame the publisher for that because it was longer and it got edited down. Oh, no. Um, I, I think I think from reading your book, that what you brought to GM was really a lot of uh, really plain common sense that seemed to be totally absent from the executive level. Yeah. Um, you had all these executives there, you know, with years of experience and MBAs who seemed to care more about uh, deadlines and the bottom line rather than the product. Yeah, well, that, um, that that's why I call it the battle for the soul of American business because that that kind of thinking was engendered by the the nation's business schools and it's not uh it's not unique to the automobile industry unfortunately well that actually leads to my 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 question perfectly uh, so what what is it that the business schools have been teaching uh for decades that results in executives being what, more focused on sorry yeah what the business schools what the focus of the business schools is is basically short-term profit maximization and using all kinds of clever techniques to reduce cost. And uh, basically what the business schools do is they do not focus on customer satisfaction, they don't focus on customer loyalty, they don't focus on uh, adding cost that creates customer value or customer delight. For instance, if you look at Apple products, if you've bought an iPad or an iPod or an iPhone, look at the packaging the beautiful wrapping, the box within a box, and the way everything nestles in there, the pleasurable customer experience begins with unwrapping the product. And people are, are sensitive to that. It, it, by the time they've got the iPod or the uh, iPhone out of the box, they feel that they've like unwrapped a, unwrapped a precious piece of jewelry. Now, a bean counter would look at that and say, we don't have to use all that packaging. Just put it in a corrugated packet. You know, put a little bubble wrap around it. Put it in a small corrugated cardboard container. Put some tape on it and ship it. It'll be just as safe and just as effective. And we're probably we're probably wasting two bucks, two bucks a unit on this type of packaging. And it's this type of um, psychologically attuned ability to relate to the customer and customer delight, which the business schools absolutely don't teach. All hey, they I, teach is techniques for financial analysis, ways to get at cost, ways to get at budgets, et cetera, et cetera, uh, optimization techniques, you know, how many plants do you really need, where should they be, how do we minimize transportation costs. It's all what I call, they're basically teaching a cost minimization model as opposed to a revenue generation model. And Steve Jobs, of course, <clears throat> hadn't gone to business school. He was a product fanatic. So he spent on stuff like beautiful packaging, beautiful design, and look where it took him. You know, we actually had a question um, by email that came in, and I'll bear with me while I read this. 
um, fits this, I think. There's an effort inside General Motors being led by Dan Ackerson and others in finance to, quote, deluxify General Motors by decontenting cars and not using the highest grade materials. Given that GM is not yet back and a large proportion of Americans still view GM as government motors, how short-sighted do you feel this is? Right now, there are many new GM cars that feel like genuine values given the sticker price and the level of content, but surely this will not last in the pursuit to squeeze the last one-tenth of every 1% of profit. <laughs> well, that, that question that that question is more acted, it's more of a statement than a question. I, I, question, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not really. <laughs> and, and, and by the way, it's, it's, it's totally wrong, and I, I don't agree with any of it. And uh, I will tell you that Dan Ackerson may not be um, a 30-year veteran of the automobile industry, but I consider that a good thing because mm. he doesn't have 30 years of programming in the wrong direction. Mm. And uh, Dan Ackerson looks at it very simplistically. <clears throat> he says, back in the days when we made <clears throat> cars that were just barely good enough, we didn't make any money. Now that we're making cars that are better than they need to be, the customer recognizes the value. We're realizing much higher average transaction prices, and the company is profitable. Why would we change a successful formula? So uh, there is, as uh, I spent the whole day at GM today as part of my consulting contract, and I can tell you everybody is focused on excellence. Everybody is focused on detail execution. Uh, there are some areas where the company doesn't feel it's as good yet as it as it should be, and one of those is the weight of the vehicles, where, where GM is going to have to concentrate on making the vehicles lighter. Uh, but there is no drive whatsoever to remove uh, value from the cars to to uh, increase margins. None. That's that's the that's the old days. That doesn't exist anymore. That's a pretty big institutional change for General Motors. Well, that's what you get when. The institutional change came about when, um, by, I think, force of will and tolerance on the part of Rick Wagner, I was allowed to change from cost-optimized cars that you could just barely get by with to cars that were arguably better than they needed to be, like the Chevrolet Cruze, and all of the cars that have extra cost in them, uh, way more cost than, than what we used to put in, but the average transaction prices are so much higher that these vehicles are profitable. So I think it was a, a demonstration, um, and it would have been very—it's very tough to get a company to make that bet because they say, "Well, what if it doesn't work?" Well, you know, you can't guarantee that it's going to work. In this case, the company toughed it out long enough. Now it's working, and I think everybody says, "Now that we're doing world-class." world-class vehicles were profitable and increasing market share again. So why should we go back? That's interesting. We have another caller, I believe. Ben? Hello, Bob. Hi, this is Len Fedork from the GSA in Washington, D.C. Just kind of curious to see, where do you see the next leap in battery technology uh, taking uh, passenger cars and trucks? Uh, that's hard to say. There's uh, There's a number of different lithium compounds being worked on like lithium sulfur and so forth that look very promising from an energy storage standpoint but uh, do have some potential thermal problems or stability problems so it's probably going to take 
you know, four or five years to bring that on stream. But I think it's safe to say that within the next 10 years, the energy storage capacity of batteries will triple and the cost will come down. So once you've got a 3x factor in storage capacity and at the same time a 3x factor in, in uh, cost coming down, uh, I think the purely electric vehicle will become viable because you really do need about a 300, you need a combination of a 300 mile range, a relatively short recharge time, and um, a, a cost that is not very much higher than a conventional automobile. And everybody's working on that, and I'm you know, convinced they'll get there. You, you spoke about uh, thermal issues with batteries, and I, we do have to ask, a number of people have asked the question, sure. how do you... How it's, a load, do, it's a loaded issue. The loaded issue. How do you think, how, what's your opinion of how GM is handling the current questions about uh, the Volt battery and fire safety? Well, not fire in, safety, but. in my judgment, uh, the company has almost gone a little bit too far in saying, yes, yes, there's something we should look at here. Yes, yes, we'll make changes. Yes, yes, we'll provide loaners to people who are worried. Um, that's all good, and that's, a, a, I suppose, a lesson out of what not to do uh, when Toyota kind of stonewalled on, on their mm -hmm. problems and mm -hmm. Ford appeared to stonewall on the fire, Firestone tire issue and so forth. But there is a point where I think you have to get out there and say, look, this is a test that is in no way reflective of real life. The test took place in May of 2011. In the summer of 2011, NHTSA gave the Volt a five-star safety rating and declared it to be one of the safest cars in America. And during this test, where the car, get this, the vehicle is totaled. It's no longer drivable. And uh, hopefully the owner, the occupants, would have been uninjured or not severely injured the protocol calls for discharging the battery after a severe accident. That was not done. The vehicle was then placed in an impound lot where after three weeks it caught fire. Now, I ask you, where is there even the faintest risk to human life if uh, a thermal event occurs three weeks after the, the vehicle is totaled? You really would think that any halfway sentient people would find the three weeks long enough to get out of the car. <laughs> and that's, that's how the industry is, is largely, the EV industry is largely reacting. I mean, we've all known for years that it's only a matter of time until someone's in a fatal wreck or there's a car that catches on fire or something happens with gas cars every day. This is a dream scenario for us. Absolutely. It's why they spent so many, I mean, well, you, you know, they spent so much money in California training people with the EV1, I mean, the first responders, right? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. There are 250,000 gasoline-powered vehicles that catch fire in the United States every year. It's sort of like one every 130 seconds. Wow. Some gasoline-powered cars somewhere, either due to an accident or a fuel, a fuel line leak on, onto the exhaust manifold, or catches fire. The, the reason this 
is getting a lot of attention is because uh, the Volt itself gets a lot of attention. But at any rate, um, I, I think, I mean, I continue to drive a Volt. I'd, I'd put my wife in a Volt. I'd put my kids in a Volt. I think the Volt is, from all standpoints, thermal safety, accident safety, etc., one of the absolute safest cars in the world today. Hard to, hard to disagree with that, quite frankly. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, when uh, when this really started to hit the fan, um, a couple of uh, friends, like Ben Wadilla from Popular Mechanics, and I got together and we came up with a bunch of questions as we were listening to the uh, to the actual conference call with uh, Mark yeah. Royce and everybody on there. We sent a bunch of questions to Rob Peterson, the uh, the Volt Minister of Propaganda, as we yeah. like to call him. Things like, you know, if if I was in a collision in a Volt, would I be more likely to die from electrocution or from the fireball? Things like that. <laughs> And he, did, he didn't respond to us immediately. Well, I'll tell you, there was, um, I can say this not being part of GM, yeah. but I think GM tried to go the extra mile, and probably with good justification, but that doesn't mean I have to like it. I think they went the extra mile to avoid casting disparagement on the NHTSA test. Yes. And, yes. Um, and because for an automobile company, a good relationship with NHTSA is a very important thing. You don't want to get on the bad side of them. But as I told Dan Ackerson today, I think I think on balance, the company went a little bit too far mm. in making sure NHTSA was happy with what we said, mm. as opposed to making sure that the public understood that there was no real world risk here. That, that's my bottom line on it. Indeed. Well, we'll see. We'll see more of this in the future. Unfortunately, the issue is not going away anytime soon. Now that uh, Dar Alyssa has called a, some hearings on the issue to see exactly how much NHTSA knew and when. In terms well, of the, this is all stupid. I mean, yes. <laughs> frankly, this is just box stupid because to imply that there is a public safety issue here when there is a slowly generating self-generating fire after three weeks, three weeks after the car is totaled, how can anyone imply any risk to the motoring public? I mean, this is, this is, this is beginning to border on insanity. It does, indeed. I was getting questions from reporters asking me to try and, and compare the Volt situation to the Pinto. And after the second one did that, I have to give them an earful. <laughs> I'm like, really? I'm a respected science writer, too. And I'm like, are you seriously asking that question? Oh. Well, that's because they're looking for, they're, they're, you know, they're trying to sell papers. Exactly. And they're looking for the sensationalist headline. And, uh, and, and frankly, they think they've got a hold of a live one now, and everybody wants to top everyone else. And this is one of the reasons why um, I spoke or wrote somewhat unkindly about the American print media in Car Guys versus Bean Counters because this is fairly typical behavior and I don't think it serves the country well or or it doesn't serve the country's industry well. Mm, indeed. Have we got more callers? I'm sure we have more callers on the line. I believe that we do, Ben. Who do we have in the queue next? Hi, Bob. This is Jeff in Santa Monica, and I'm the guy that you uh, built the vault for. Yeah, great. I like it. I, 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 drive, I drive less than 40 miles a day usually, sometimes a little more. 
and I have almost 12,000 miles all battery electric on my Volt. Wow. Great. You know, so I was wondering, if you look at your screen, you're probably fighting with uh, Jay Leno, who is very proud of the fact that his screen comes up with an average of over 1,000 miles per gallon. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. What, I mean, I've, I've only bought 22 gallons of gas this year. Okay. What's your screen say as, in terms of average mileage? It says, uh, for the life of the car, it's 250-plus because the meter tops out at 250-plus. Oh. <laughs> When I get my report, when I get my report, my monthly report from OnStar, of course it says 485 miles per gallon. My yeah, God, you got to work to catch Jay. He's over the <laughs> Wait, I, well, actually, is Jay Leno? Does Jay Leno have like his assistant driving that car? Because Jay drives all of his cars all of the time. <laughs> no, no, I know Jay. I met him at the Volt Owners Party GM through just before the auto show, ah. and Jay and I actually have the exact same model Volt. Uh-huh. And and yes, he drives his car. Yeah, he well, he loves it a lot. And, and every my my son-in-law traded in uh, a 911 Porsche Turbo for his Volt. And, wow. Well, he lives in Palos Verdes, and uh, you know, in Southern California, if you show up with a Porsche Turbo, nobody uh, 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 nobody notices. That's true. But you show yeah. up with a Volt, everybody notices. They mm. notice a Volt. So I get to uh- me. So my question, which is, I read your book, and I love that every American should read it. Um, you said in Revenge of the Electric Car that the electrification of the automobile is a foregone conclusion. Yeah. And I was wondering how you feel the marketing of the Volt's going and the advertising. Do you think Chevy's doing the right job and that the, the public is getting educated properly and will well, accept the Volt? Do you, do you think we'll see a double dip in the, like the EV1 experience? I I think uh, Chevrolet is doing all they can, given uh, given how much budget that they can allocate to it, um, to educate people on the advantages of the Volt. But you know it's going to be a slow process, and by electrification, I don't necessarily mean that everything is going to in the next ten years. I don't mean that everything is going to have the same degree of electrification as the Volt. Some of it will be much milder. Some of it will be um, a a hybrid drive, sort of more like more like the Toyota Prius. Uh, some of it may be very light electrification, like we've got in the Buick LaCrosse now, with what GM calls e-assist, which gives you about you know a 10 or 12 or 15 percent boost in mileage. But the 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 thing is, uh, five or six years from now, as we approach these ever more stringent fuel economy standards. I think just about every vehicle is going to have to have some sort of electric assist in order to, of greater or lesser, in order to meet the mileage requirements. So, so back to the Porsche direction. I want to know when we can get a Volt with that kind of performance. I want the torque of the EV1 in the Volt. Well, you know, power and range are always a trade-off, and uh, I don't if you. Uh, if you move the lever into the if you move the gear lever into the aft position on the Volt, of course you're in sport mode and it 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 does feel like it's going quite a bit faster. I think performance of the Volt is is adequate. I don't I don't see making a sports car out of it, frankly. Well, here's here's an interesting question though. I think how will we see 
and maybe it's too soon to talk about it, but the Cadillac ELR, yeah. what kind of a different experience should we expect, do you think, between the ELR and the Volt? I don't know because I am not privy to those details. Oh, but, too bad. Um, <laughs> I considered it a major victory that I was able to get the company to do it. Agreed. That was one of the. I think that's one of the most attractive concept cars that GM's had in, well, in recent years. Every show it went to, it made best concept, and many people said, "Hey, I need that car. I don't care what's driving it." Yeah, it looks like a little mini Lamborghini Gallardo, quite frankly. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. Very nice. Very nice. I, I do have to ask a question uh, on my own here about um, your involvement with Lotus. Yeah. I understand you're, you're, you're an advisor to, to yeah, Lotus. Yeah, I'm a member of the so-called advisory board, so I can help <laughs> for them. And, uh, in fact, I'm going over this weekend to spend um, a weekend in Hethel and uh, being brought up to date. And it's, it's, just, it's just they've got a, a group of people who are known as automotive enthusiasts and who are experienced in the car business that sort of form a second board, which is not not the legal board the legal board is as usual you know mostly bankers and mm -hmm. malaysian government officials since it's mm -hmm. a malaysian owned company uh but uh, danny bahar the ceo i think very wisely decided uh that board is going to look at financial performance and you know treasury stuff but is not going to give him any advice and guidance in the automobile business so he assembled a second board called the advisory board, which has, is really a bunch of interesting, a bunch of interesting car guys of all nationalities, and uh, we frequently disagree, which is normal when you get a bunch of car guys in the same room. But we are able to, I think, drive Lotus in the in the right direction and get Lotus do the same transformation at Lotus that occurred with Aston Martin, which is to take it from a company with so little volume, like 2,000 a year, where it almost doesn't matter, and get that company up to about 10 or 12,000 vehicles a year, which would make it meaningful and, and profitable. Well, they came out with a range of vehicles, like six or like five or six concepts that yeah. that they were coming out with. Can they actually make that many yeah, vehicles? Well, one of them, one of them uh, the Elan and the Esprit kind of overlapped, so yeah. the Elan is going to be pushed back some, but uh, the Esprit is on course, the Elise is on course, uh, hmm. the big rear-wheel drive coupe is on course, and, hmm. and uh, the interesting thing is these, these vehicles are engineered in such a way, uh, it's a similar philosophy to BMW, where you can do different cars of different sizes but you're basically always using the same Lego set. You're just putting the bricks together in different ways. Hmm. So, were these all? Were they all designed by by Roger Becker? Hmm? Were they designed by Roger Becker, or are these just ongoing, changing designs? No, the the the, the chief designer at Lotus today is Donato Coco, who is the former chief designer of Ferrari. Ah. Yeah, he's very good. He did he did all of those concept cars that you saw. They were attractive. I saw them in. Uh... The, my favorite, of course, was the four door sedan. And Donato Coco didn't want to put it in the show because he said it's it's not finished. It's not finished. I need to massage the shape some more. The, mm -hmm. the sculpting of the of the the body isn't finished. It, I said, Hey, Donato, look. 
it'd be a shame to miss the show season with the four-door sedan because that's the big surprise and that's the one that could ultimately be very successful that was the turn correct yeah yes i saw i saw them in la i think it was a year ago when uh, last year i call that the aston martin killer when when sharon stone will be they will be priced lower than Aston Martins or Ferraris or Lamborghinis. So I'm hoping that, um, like the Bentleys, the small Bentleys, the Audi A8-based Bentleys, that these Lotus vehicles will, obviously they're the, the larger ones, the V8s and so forth, will uh, be over $100,000. But uh, if you're sort of in the mid-100s, I think you're you're hitting the sweet spot. You get over 200 and towards the 250 and 275, you know, the, the air gets pretty thin there. But um, I, I think I think Lotus has a good business plan. They're well managed. They uh, they've got financial discipline. They know what they're doing, and it's a an international team. The chief engineer is uh, Wolfgang Zimmermann, formerly of AMG, so he definitely knows what he's doing. It's a, it's a good team. I feel very good about it. That's good to hear. There was a lot of curiosity about about the company, given the fact that they had so many vehicle concepts that they came out with, and even just one or two of those would be a yeah, difficult you know, and, thing and to do. Some of them, some of them are not final. Some yeah. of them will will change, or or they'll be slightly modified for production reasons. But mm-hmm. I think it was a it was very clever because what the company needed most of all was to get itself visible again and show that it's alive and well and under new management. And you could spend a ton of money, uh, like you could spend 10 or 15 or $20 million and not achieve that. But you do a couple of maybe a million dollars worth of concept cars that are very close to what you're actually going to build, and the whole world takes notice. And even if some of the, car, some of the comments were negative, and said, "Well, this is this is way too much, and they'll never do it, and et cetera, et cetera." But it, you know, the old saying, uh, "I don't care what you write about me, but please spell my name right." <laughs> exactly. Well, I think our our next question actually comes from. I'm almost embarrassed to say this. I don't think I've ever met anybody that I can't say is a Bob Lutz fanboy, but <laughs> is another fanboy. Um, Alex, who um, is one of the um, directors of GM Inside News, one of our co-streaming partners, and he's got a question. Oh, hello. Hey, Bob. This is Alex from GM Inside News. I think we've met a couple times on the auto show circuit. Uh, I hate to swing it back to GM, but uh, as we run uh, as we run the site, uh, people want to know what do you think that GM has to do as far as trying to get Opal back in the black? I mean, obviously they have some really good product um, either it, right now coming out and some stuff coming down in the future. Uh, is, do you think it's more of a labor price negotiations, or is there uh, something else that's causing uh, Opal to stay in the red? What Opal? Uh, yeah, with Opel, yeah. about Opel. Well, look, I, I I don't think there's a single manufacturer in Europe right now who is making money in the European market. I mean, it's tough. There's uh, there's a lot of overcapacity, um, a lot of people in the middle, and the companies that are making money, like Volkswagen, uh, Audi, um, BMW, Mercedes-Benz, 
they are not dependent on the German market or, or on the European market because uh, they export all over the world. They produce all over the world. In the case of Volkswagen and Audi, they have the same tailwind that GM does, which is a huge presence in China, which is incredibly lucrative. Uh, Mercedes and BMW, in, a, in addition to that, also have production facilities in the United States where they're producing in dollars and shipping back to Europe. But you look at the companies that are kind of landlocked in Europe, Fiat. Uh, right now, Fiat, if, if they hadn't bought Chrysler and were not getting a ton of financial assistance from a newly profitable Chrysler Corporation, Fiat would be in dire straits. And I know that Renault is hurting. Uh, Ford of Europe is losing money. Um, uh, Peugeot Citroën is hurting. So the European environment is is a desperate situation for everybody. And was there, I, my guess is there is going to have to be further consolidation in that market or everybody's going to be unprofitable. From the chat room, um, what do you think about the uh, BMW plug-in car plans? The BMW what car plans? The plug-in car plans. It would have to be the BMW oh, i brand, no, yeah. They, 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 uh, I think it'll be a lot. I, I personally don't like it aesthetically if it's uh, that i3 concept that they showed at the shows. Uh, I mean, that to me, my personal taste is I think that's very hard to love. But technologically, it'll be very similar to a Volt because uh, they've got uh, uh, Frank Weber, who was the, the vehicle line executive for the Chevrolet Volt, was hired away from BMW, and I'm sure uh, the second time around he'll do just as good a job as he did the first time around. <laughs> Absolutely. Do we have any other uh, I believe we have like, several questions. Ben, who's next? Try and get as many on as we can, I guess, before the 10 o'clock rounds are up. I know. We've got very little time. I'm glad to hear that Mr. Lutz agrees with Mr. Ackerson coming along there. I just want to let Bob Lutz know that I have one of the few CTS Cadillacs in the state of Maine, and I'm a retiree from GM after 41 years, but it's a great car, and I was glad to see Rick Wagner hired him in. I'm glad to hear he's still working with General Motors. Thank you. Okay. Well, great. Thanks for your Thanks for your service. Thanks for the call. Tell everybody about the car. <laughs> well, who's next, Ben? Hi, this is Keith uh, in the Detroit area. Hi, Keith. Um, and my question is, you know, and, and this is really just a snapshot from today, but if, to follow up on, on what was said earlier about Europe, if you look at what's going on, GM is not profitable in Europe. They're not profitable in South America. They're sort of in tough straits in, in China with the, with the market declining there. No, no, and no. in the U.S. Uh, wait, wait, I've got to stop you. China is highly profitable, and the market is not dropping off. It's simply growing a little less fast. Okay, sorry. Sorry about yeah. that. But I, I, I guess my, my question was that it seems that at least in the U.S., we're back to a dependence on perhaps smaller, but at least uh, trucks and SUVs. And um, it's, well, you know, you know are, are we back to the same problem that we yeah, had before? I, I, and um, obviously, trucks, SUVs, full-size crossovers, uh, full-size cars are always going to be more profitable than small cars because um, 
whether you like it or not, the public equates price with vehicle size. Maybe not as much as they used to, but they still do. And you can charge more money for a larger, more powerful one than you can for a small one. And yet, if you look at the total cost of an, of an automobile, uh, the initial investment required, the amount of engineering that, that you've got to amortize over the life of the car, uh, the, the number of labor hours in the car, there really is not that much cost difference between a small one, a medium-sized one, and a large one but you can charge more for the big ones. So I think it's, it's, it's just a fact of life that in the market, um, the big cars are going to do better. And full-size SUVs happen to be, uh, if, as long as fuel remains affordable, those are vehicles that the American public loves, and they're making a big comeback. So the challenge is going to be, how do you make these full-size vehicles far more fuel efficient even if it results in additional cost so that they'll meet the fuel economy mandates and are still available to the public and uh, uh, frankly uh, with that's one of the things that via motors is all is all about is the the uh, electrification of full-size trucks okay so we're going to take um rick next and this is going to be our next to the last question because i know we need to let mr let's go because it is getting late in the evening yep and i have to get up at three o'clock in the morning to yes i got a question for bob uh, on the opal thing uh is there any chance like the three series you were talking about could be made into an opal model um sold in europe as an opal opposed to cadillac i know gm wants to push cadillac but uh, there's a time factor involved. I mean, five or ten years probably to establish Cadillac really to where they want it to be in Europe. So an alternative would be uh, something like a 3 Series or even 1 Series as an Opal. Uh, just building it in Europe because you're going to have to pay a hefty fee anyway, and it helps yeah. to uh, be you a... Know, we, we tried that with the uh, we tried that with the sort of Cadillac, small Cadillac that looked a lot like a CTS, but it was based on a Saab architecture. And we did a very good job on differentiation, both exterior and interior, but it didn't work. And uh, I think for Cadillacs to be successful in Europe, uh, they're going to have to be genuine Cadillacs, and they probably need to be exported from the United States. And right now, Given where the dollar is, and given with the with the uh, cooperation that we're getting from the UAW, uh, strange to say, the U.S. is a very good place to build vehicles right now, even for export. But I think the future of Cadillac is going to be the, the near-term future of Cadillacs in the next ten years is really going to be in North America and in China, where Cadillac is on a very, very steep growth curve. And uh, China is now the world's largest market for luxury vehicles. So I think the, the feeling is that GM, we make, we make Cadillac into a global brand by further building it in the United States and then um, expanding it as quickly as we possibly can in China. And uh, those two those two markets will will guarantee the success of the Cadillac brand globally. Excellent. And if if Europe comes, you know, five years later, six years later, or eight years later, it's kind of like who cares? Mm. 
We have one last question for the general public, and that will be from Frank. Are you there, Frank? Hi, Mr. Lutz. Uh, Frank Shirosky. Uh, disclosure, I write for TorqueNews.com, but I'm also a former early retired GM uh, design engineer. Uh, short question pertaining to advanced engine technology for in, uh, uh, combustion engines, yeah. HCCI versus split cycle uh, technology relative to the GM mandate, uh, or I'm sorry, the government mandate of uh, 2025 of 54.5 miles per gallon. Yeah, um, all I know is that HCCI um, is looks very promising. Um, if it can, if if HCCI can attain and maintain stable combustion all the way from idle to say up to 5,000 RPM, it will permit gasoline engines to basically run sparkless and uh, achieve the same fuel economy benefit as a diesel engine namely roughly a 20% improvement. So I think advanced combustion technology is definitely part of the equation that's uh, that's going to be incorporated into cars along with electrification. Of course, the more you can attain with the conventional internal combustion engine, the less you have to put into expensive batteries uh, because further improvements with internal combustion is a very is a relatively cost-effective way of getting there. So everybody's working on that. I happen to, full disclosure, I happen to be a board member of a California company called Transonic Combustion, which is, I think, probably probably has the lead now in making HCCI work. That's awesome. Okay, well, I guess we will end with one question from Aaron and Chelsea and I. What is your favorite car of all time? Well, that's that's always a tough question because then you have to ask the second question for what? <laughs> ah, yes. Because I've I've never met uh, a car that so, that serves all needs all the time, and there are times when I I drive my Tahoe and I think, boy, this is the ideal vehicle. You know, decent fuel economy, great safety, wonderful visibility, great ride and handling, and so forth. But if you if if God were to come to me and say, all right, enough of this various vehicles in your fleet. Uh, you're going to drive one vehicle for the rest of your life and none other. So make, take your pick. Uh, my choice would be uh, a Cadillac CTS-V station wagon. You know, I that hard to disagree with that one too yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it does everything it's, it's, it, elegant, it, it, it's, it's elegant it's comfortable it's a family hauler and it's got 560 horsepower and you know if you if you'd said just a few years ago that in in a few years you'll be able to go down to your dealership and buy a rear wheel drive manual transmission supercharged 550 horsepower v8 corvette engine cadillac station wagon yeah <laughs> Nobody would have believed you. That's right. <laughs> yeah, well, there it is. It. <laughs> it's fantastic. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for coming oh, you're on. You're welcome. Thanks very much. And um, put in another plug for the book, and I'll be happy. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. Car guy, it's, it's Car Guys versus Bean Counters. If you guys haven't read it yet, you need to. <laughs> there you go. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. Okay. Thanks, sir. Thanks a lot. Yeah, have a nice evening. Bye-bye. Thank you. Good night. Thank you, too.
And we thank GM Inside News, GM Authority, Rumble Strip and BC Auto Geek for co-streaming our show tonight. That was really fun. Like this show? There's a whole lot more where this came from. Just join us on the first Tuesday of every month between 8 p.m. and 12 a.m. Eastern Time and dial 1712-432-0900 and PEN 911-633. Get even more info about this and many other automotive programs at autoline.tv. Follow me, Michelle Naranjo, at twitter.com slash Motormouth or Chelsea Sexton at twitter.com slash evchels. Until next time, happy motoring! Please hang up now. If you need assistance, dial your operator. This is a recording.